Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to this week's episode of No Liberty. I'm thrilled to have you here this week. I am Caleb Franz. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation. This week, we have a very special guest. This week is Matt Kibbe of uh, Free the People, um, and we get into quite a wide range of, of topics. While this is probably the least political as far as day-to-day politics go, uh, the least political interview or episode that I've had, it's certainly the most cultured <laughs> interview or episode I have, and perhaps the most uh, stereotypically libertarian episode that uh, that I've had. We talk a lot about um, beer, <laughs> a lot about beer, uh, and what he thinks about lowering the drinking age, why is beer freedom, we talk about uh, culture, we talk about why culture is so much more important than having people know what our politics are, uh, and why it's upstream to politics. And he gives some interesting insight into what books he might recommend, what music he might recommend, and what beer he might recommend. So, as you're listening to this, sit back, relax, enjoy a nice cold beverage, and enjoy my interview with Matt Kibbe. Matt, welcome. Hey, Caleb. It's great to be with you. It's awesome uh, awesome having you here. Um, so, you are uh, very much involved with your organization, Free the People. First of all, tell us, uh, for those who don't know, tell us what uh, Free the People is and what it does. So we created Free the People right after I left FreedomWorks, which was a libertarian-ish Tea Party grassroots organizing platform. And the idea was to, to really take a step away from politics, get upstream of politics, and, and focus on engaging people in the, in the popular culture. Because you look at, at so much of, of how we get information today and how we, how we learn about history, it's, it's usually through entertainment, it's through video, it's through movies, it's through music and comedy. And, and libertarians have been not the best at, at kind of creating a, a compelling story, a personal human story about, about why liberty is awesome and how it, how it creates these tremendous opportunities to do things that no one's ever done before. So, so we're, we're basically an ongoing series of experiments with, with storytelling. How do, you, how do you tell the story of liberty? How do you tell the story of entrepreneurship? Um, why are so many young people um, flirting with socialism when they live in this, this profoundly libertarian world where everything's completely decentralized, they're in charge of everything, they choose everything, and yet they think that socialism's cooler than capitalism. There's, there's a solution there somewhere, but we have to do something about it. Uh, yeah, so you do videos um, and these, these nifty little, you know, short little clips about things wide-ranging from music um, to beer, uh, to Wi-Fi, and, and just how it makes lives better, and then uh, you connect it back to how either capitalism is a success in these fields, or how, on the, up, on the opposite end, how socialism and communism has done nothing but completely destroyed these kind of industries and completely destroyed these, the, the innovation that comes with them. Uh, what makes... What makes the kind of videos uh, that you do and the kind of clips that you do so much more compelling than than 
somebody sitting down because a lot of libertarians tend to think that well if we just sit down and talk with talk policy with them then we'll, we'll make the whole world libertarian why is that such why is that such the wrong idea well because mo most people don't care about policy they they care about um, their lives and they care about the lives of their friends and their families and they they love to see that the source of uh, the product of entrepreneurship but they don't they don't really need to know how it works. They don't necessarily um, care how it works as long as cool stuff happens. And I think um, you know we're, we always uh, we always have the best spreadsheets and the, the most profound white papers. And and we've all read seven hundred page books by Adam Smith and and Ludwig von Mises. And so most of the liberty movement, myself included, started off sort of as that that policy geek that was. You know, we were really into books and 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 really moved by by those arguments. But but that's that's not normal. I'm not normal. You're probably not normal. Um, and most libertarians I know are not normal because they have this sort of um, irrational passion for truth and justice and making things better for people. And and most people just you know that everyone cares about that stuff, but it's lower on their list. So the, the answer to all that is to tell a story. And, and, you know, I tell stories about beer, and it's really um, the, the craft beer revolution in the United States is really a metaphor for disruptive entrepreneurship. You know, how is it that, how is it that there are so many styles of beer in the United States that were just unimaginable just a couple years ago? And it traces back to some very big risks taken by very entrepreneurial guys who wanted to do something dif different. They wanted to break the rules. They wanted to break the old model that said there's only five brewers and they all make the same awful beer. And and to, to understand how we got from there to here, I think is is a great way to teach people about about why entrepreneurs should be free to create, to disrupt, to fail, to succeed, and to do all of this cool risk taking that most of us don't have an appetite for, but it's that entrepreneurship that sort of makes the, 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 the whole process of innovation happen. Um, so one of your more recent videos that you've done, uh, was recently on, you obviously took notice on something that attorney general Jeff Sessions, uh, spoke about when he was talking about marijuana and how he equated it essentially to being, on the same level as as heroin, uh, and that of course perked up a lot of a lot of the ears and and your circles and my circles, and uh, it it really started scratching our heads. So you did a, a video um, on it, and why is it that the the kind of ideology and, and rhetoric that the attorney general is using uh, to describe these uh, you know the people who who may use them or or just marijuana itself why is that so concerning to you from the attorney general you know he's it's his view which uh is that um you know he said several things that that sounded right out of the 1950s first that that only bad people smoke marijuana and and second that it it's the equivalent of of heroin and it has no medicinal value at all and and for the people had just spent a very rigorous um, week with a medical cannabis activist from Utah, a woman named Christine Stenquist. And, and I, I met 
a lot of patients whose lives had been changed by using medical cannabis. Some of them were addicted to opioids. Um, others just that the, the prescription drug industrial complex wasn't solving their problem. They couldn't function. And Christine, of course, um, had had a brain tumor and the, the surgery that followed left her in incredible pain for some 15 years. And, and medical cannabis changed her life. And I would love to sit uh, Jeff Sessions down with uh, Christine and her fellow patient activists because their stories cannot be denied. And the, the real devastation that comes from opioid abuse, which you have to link to the spike in heroin addiction, these, these are dangerous drugs. Uh, marijuana is not a dangerous drug. And we could argue about the, the efficacy of, of using marijuana to treat um, pain and, and, uh, and seizures and other, other uses that it has. But, you know, as libertarians, we should allow people to make those choices for themselves. And, and I, I know a lot of people personally that made that choice and, and it was better for them, it was better for their families. And I just don't think the attorney general or the federal government is, is capable of making those decisions for us. And I, I, think, I, think, I think a lot of people would agree with me on that. Because at, at the root issue, it, it really is about personal choice and, and personal responsibility. And whether or not you think it's uh, a decision that can be made, that can be better made um, from Washington, from the, from the federal level, from the top down, or from uh, the community level, or more importantly, the individual level. So is this something that would be, that we should maybe be concerned about um, moving forward? Is this something that, do you think libertarians might um, have a setback with in the fight on the, the war against drugs? Or do you think that ultimately uh, states might prevail in, in the struggle? I, th I think it's difficult to turn the clock back, but it, I think it's also dangerous to make any bold predictions about the future direction of the Trump administration. That's true. Be because Donald Trump, of course, has, has said different things about marijuana. He's, he's been more um, thoughtful on the subject than, than Jeff Sessions has. But I think the idea of Republicans... Um, so publicly throwing the 10th Amendment and states' rights out the window to go after states like Washington and Colorado that have, have legalized marijuana, it's, it's, it's somewhat unimaginable. But they'll do it, they'll do it in less um, public ways. They'll, they'll deal with uh, civil asset forfeiture and they'll, they'll, they'll deal with uh, banking regulations that make it very difficult for the legal marijuana in industry to function properly, and I, I think that's going to go on. Um, but again, if if we if the goal here is to change political outcomes in the short run, we got to we got to get upstream of politics and and change hearts and minds. And on this issue, we need to be talking to conservatives and Republicans and show them that there's there are there are family values reasons why you would let people choose to use something like medical cannabis. It's you know, they're, it's not for them, and uh, I think I think as we started this conversation, I think libertarians sometimes fall into the trap of sounding libertine, and that has nothing to do with libertarianism at all. It has to do with whether or not the government's going to make that choice for you. It doesn't. It doesn't replace social institutions or personal responsibility. In fact, it accentuates those those places 
where people come together and, and make responsible decisions. Um, so on that point, uh, how confident are you that despite elections and despite politics and uh, despite the, the political aspect of it, how confident are you that libertarians are able to and will eventually um, win the culture wars in the end because like you just said culture ultimately is upstream from from politics well i think um, i mean i i consider this the biggest opportunity that those of us believe in liberty liberty have ever had certainly in my lifetime and i, I would argue ever and that's that's because of technology that's because of the liberating forces of of social media and and other peer-to-peer platforms in, including blockchain that's it's just a that's a whole nother topic that we may we may get into or may not. But the reality is, we we know more, we have access to so many more choices, and that means that the playing field is leveled between the advocates of big government, whether it be the 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 old three TV network news or the Marxist professor behind the podium. Um, now all that power shifts back to the end user. And I always love to tell the story about Justin Amash to, to get people to appreciate how profound this opportunity is. Um, he's he's still a young guy. I think he's 36, 38, something like that. Right. But when he got out of uh, college and he got out of law school, he still had never been exposed to the ideas of liberty. He didn't know who Adam Smith was. He certainly didn't know who Ludwig von Mises was. And he was trying to figure out where he fit on the political spectrum because he was considering a, a career... Uh, running for public office. And he looked at the Democrats and he said, I'm definitely not one of those guys because they believe in big government. But then he looked at the Republicans and was was trying to figure out why it didn't feel quite right. Um, because his, you know, his uh, local GOP was typical country club Republican, um, really big government of a different flavor. And so he typed in what he was thinking into a Google search and uh, F.A. Hayek pops up. And he, he starts, and I've made up a word to describe this, he starts self-curriculating. And he starts reading books, and he, he one book to another book, and he starts reading Hayek and Adam Smith and Ludwig von Mises. And when you go into his office today in Washington, D.C., one of the first things you see is a picture of Karl Menger. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's shocking that any congressman elected to public office would know who the founder of the Austrian School of Economics was. But now you have this writ large and you know a generation that would that was um, exposed to liberty because of seeing ron paul on youtube is now completely disintermediated people are getting liberty from all sorts of places they're getting it from comedy they're getting it from youtube they're they're getting it from facebook everywhere else and they're creating their own um, research paradigm they're they're learning for themselves and they're they're no longer responsible um they don't. They don't have to accept what that professor or that news anchor used to tell them was true. Now they can crowdsource it for themselves. Mm-hmm. I find that uh, that very fascinating too, because um, this generation that is currently up and coming is living in a time that is completely extraordinary in the way that the marketplace is actually working efficiently. Um, you have ride sharing and, and the sharing economy. And how it's completely revolutionized and completely um, 
broken down and broken apart the the taxi and and hotel um, industries and making them actually compete for once uh, and different things from from how just simple Wi-Fi and and simple things like that have really changed their lives but then when you go to a typical college campus the the culture and the politics they still don't add up because that connection uh, still hasn't aligned itself because there are still old Marxist professors on college campuses um, still trying to hold on to what they know dear even though the world is completely obliterating their entire worldview. Uh, is it going to be a lot easier um, as time goes on uh, to to be able to make these connections to people? And even though Bernie Sanders is is the popular uh, youth candidate right now and, and youth personality right now, uh, is it sort of inevitable that that those ideas will will just fade away? Well, I think you have this this just monumental clash it's it's kind of it's almost game of thrones style where you have all of these old institutions that are clinging to the old way of doing things and and the taxi monopolies and the marxist professors and i think the federal government all fit into this category old tired old corporations who were practical monopolists because they colluded with big government all of those old ways of doing things from the top down are desperately threatened by by the democratization and and liberation of, of people to, to know and to choose differently than than they used to uh, be dictated to and and of course any entrenched incumbent whether it's a corporation or a Republican party is, is going to freak out when their when their power is threatened um, by this this disruptive innovation and that's going on across the board it's happening in every country in the world right now, it's happening in every industry, it's happening in, the, in how we convey knowledge to each other. And this is all incredibly uncomfortable for incumbent, incumbents. So it's, it's probably gonna get worse before it gets better, but it also, the, the outcome to me seems quite inevitable. And, and of course, as, as much as Facebook and Twitter have, have liberated people to connect and share and and self-organize just imagine what happens with the next generation of of peer-to-peer technology that is not controlled by the ceo of twitter that is not controlled by the federal government that wants to seize your data it's it's completely independent of how these top-down structures operate and in that world we're free to trade we're free to organize we're free to know what's going on and that is devastating to incumbents and i think that's the opportunity we need to keep our our sights set on mm-hmm. yeah and you know i uh, sometimes will often point to even like what what we're doing here right now um with this podcast just 20 some years ago this would have been unthought of or unheard of because uh it's it's the 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 radio giants that that control the airwaves and um if if you wanted to really get up in the world and and make yourself known in in that capacity it was a lot more difficult um and now you don't need to go the same um structured route anymore you can go from uh from overnight to overnight success in in a very short period of time 
And I think that's a, a wonderful illust- illustration of, of how um, the market has found a really great solution to um, cutting away and cutting down the, the, the news corporations and the news, uh, the news monopoly. Um, so tell me, why is beer freedom? <laughs> well, first of all, beer is awesome. <laughs> and and I, I'm sort of obsessed with uh, the very f- furthest reaches of craft beer. I, I love this process that we're going through in the United States right now where um, the most disruptive craft brewers are trying to figure out just how much hops you can get into a glass without literally melting people's faces. And, and to me, I, I love that, that disruption and, and I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to um, very extreme styles of beer that that can go up to up to fifteen percent alcohol. Very different from the uh, than the piss water that that we were served as as teenagers, <laughs> and and that's that's really interesting to me. And and as I've dug into this, I've I've discovered some of the entrepreneurs that that create made all this possible. Uh, one in one in particular, a guy named Fritz Maytag, saved a bankrupt brewery called Anchor Brewing in San Francisco. He had just gotten out of graduate school and he, he happened to love this beer because it didn't taste like your your average corporate um, bloggers and he wanted to do something about it. He didn't know anything about beer. He just knew what he liked and he, he proceeded in this discovery process of trying to figure out not only how to make better beer but, but how could you get um, the American consumer to actually care about this and he he bet his family fortune on this project, and he, you know, one day before he succeeded, he actually ended up on the on the floor of his brewery, thinking he was having a heart attack. So this guy bet everything on his passion, and if you talk to any brewer today who has been successful, they will tell you that Fritz Maytag is the is the the founding father of modern craft beer, and he, he helped other guys like uh, Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada. Who, who was one of the, the first innovators and is now, you know, he, Ken Grossman had this wild idea that you could make hoppy beer in IPA with, with Northwestern um, Pilsner uh, uh, hops like Cascade and, and other hops that hadn't been used before. And now Seattle, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, you can find it at almost any watering hole in the country. And Ken Grossman, who again was was bankrupt, broke, about to go out of business, he's now worth one point three trillion, one point three billion dollars, not worth a trillion dollars. Um, and I love I love the fact that these guys um, they didn't do this to make money; they did it because they wanted to change the world, and they had a passion, and they pursued it, and everybody made fun of them. Um, that to me is 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 freedom in a nutshell. And I think uh, beer is that that beautiful metaphor. Well, we all take it for granted that that we can we can go to a grocery store now and and have hundreds of choices and what kind of beer we're going to drink. Um, when I was a kid, there were five, and they all tasted the same, and they all tasted like crap. <laughs> um, so is that is that what makes you a quote unquote libertarian? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, you know, as I said, I, I love this story. And I love the storytelling aspect of of disruptive beer. And if if you if you go to any town in America today, some of the some of the coolest 
small businesses out there are young people making beer in in a garage or or in a in a basement trying to deal with all of the regulatory barriers to success and they you know big beer goes after them and 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 local prohibitions and in some of the southern states still apply and your right to sell beer directly to customers there's all these technocratic barriers um, that are teaching young people why government sometimes just sucks and I, I think I think we need to amplify those stories um, so this is a little bit off topic but I I'm curious about what you think about this do you think it would be uh, wise um, to at some point try to push to lower the drinking age I do I think 21 is too high mm-hmm. um, and I think um, I also think that the the um, way that that we treat alcohol as taboo if you're 18 years old is is probably not a healthy attitude towards what what can be a safe and enjoyable um, hobby and mm-hmm. and I think I think we sort of we make too much of it and and it it's never made sense to me that you can go to war but you can't get a beer that right. that just there's something fundamentally wrong with that right because to me, of what I've seen, it, it seems to have the same effect that uh, the war on drugs has, and it's it's completely the opposite reaction that people has to it. Um, that that tends to be when you know when the the really abuse of alcohol happens is those college days of between eighteen and twenty one when it's taboo and when it's it's not allowed and then after you turn 21 things tend to die down a little bit so that that seems kind of common sense to me i was at a uh, students for liberty conference where i gave a talk on beer and in the process of talking about it we actually opened up some anchor steam and we opened up some sierra nevada and then we opened (laughs) up some some really crazy triple ipas from three floyds and and other places and of course in the czech republic um young people are allowed to drink so i was raffling off beers while i was giving a talk and if you really can't understand the disruptive nature of american craft brewing unless you've got a beer in your hand it it changes your world right right it's it's almost as if uh for for some individuals um the prohibition has never ended it's still continuing well i mean people People don't probably don't know the history of, of the repeal of prohibition. It, it it kept in place the so-called three-tiered structure, which is a classic case of crony capitalism. The the big guys wanted to control the industry, and they wanted to control distribution. And and the way that you used to choke off these upstart brewers was by not allowing them to distribute their own beer, not allowing them to sell their own beer to their own customers in a brew pub. And it was actually Jimmy Carter that, that legalized home brewing. And, and later it was uh, states like Washington, Oregon, and California that were first to, to legalize um, selling, selling beer to your customers in your own craft brew pub. And those, those were fundamental liberations that, that created this explosion and it and, and it it wouldn't have happened if big government and big business had had their way with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me get into okay. So let me shift gears here first and uh, get into a little bit more about what 
made you uh, so weird, as you put it, or <laughs> or different? Um, what was the initial spark that made you so interested in in, in politics, and more specifically, uh, interested in liberty? So when I was thirteen years old, I bought an album. Um, from what at the time was my favorite band. I had just discovered them. It's a band called Rush. Mm-hmm. And and I went, and you know, back in the day, you used to have to go to these ancient institutions called record stores if you wanted <laughs> to buy music. And you had to drive there. And, and I went there looking for a specific album, but they didn't have the album I wanted, but they had one called 2112. And I took it home, and I, you know, back in the day when you used to buy your your music on on vinyl discs um it came in record sleeves and record sleeves had liner notes and the liner notes to 2112 are dedicated to the genius of ayn rand and the that song 2112 is in fact a um fairly um generous lifting of of her small novel anthem and and I, w- I was totally into this, and and I was I was I was digging the story of this this faraway place where, where an overreaching government was was oppressive to people's uh, uh, creative rights, particularly um, the 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 ability to to make different types of music. And by accident, I didn't know who this this dude Ayn Rand was. I mean, I was I was 13 years old. It was a strange name. But I stumbled across one of uh, her novels. I was actually Anthem at a used uh, book sale in a garage just a couple weeks after that. And I immediately started devouring all of her stuff. I read Anthem. I set out to find The Fountainhead. Um, I eventually found Atlas Shrugged. And it was a very difficult thing to do back then because you couldn't Google it. Uh, Libraries didn't have it. Uh, Bookstores didn't carry it. But I became obsessed with that stuff. and, And... my strangeness came from reading all of this libertarian stuff when I was a teenager. It's the worst possible way in the world to meet girls in high school. <laughs> yes, that's that's very true. I can I can attest to that. Yeah, you may know what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. Um, so, is would you say that Ayn Rand is is the most influential uh, character that has kind of made you into who you are today? I would say for my generation, and, and I think there's a, there's a lesson to be learned there, because she didn't write, I mean, eventually she, she taught me to, she, she says in one of her nonfiction books that if you want to understand economics, you read Ludwig von Mises. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I started reading economics, but her, her work primarily was storytelling. She was writing novels, and her novels were wildly successful not just as philosophy, but as entertainment. It was it was fun to read this this whodunit story, trying to figure out who John Galt was, and I think that's why so many people of my generation will say it started with Ayn Rand. The, uh, the previous generation probably were introduced to um, these ideas either through Milton Friedman's Free to Choose, which was a PBS series on on old-fashioned TV. Or even going back to Frederick Hayek's *Road to Serfdom*, which, for its time, was was kind of a um, pop public policy take on Hayek's uh, heavier ideas. So I think I think the lesson here is that if you want to sell ideas, tell a story. And I think I think I think Ayn Rand was was sort of my gateway drug that introduced me to all these all these really interesting ideas. But the 
you know, the d delivery device was really important. It was a novel. It wasn't a white paper. It wasn't, it wasn't the theory of moral sentiments in all of its glorious 700 plus pages. Um, so if, if, if Ayn Rand was the, the person that kind of helped define that, tell me what, uh, keeps you driven today what what is it that because i know a lot of people that will get bogged down in in the politics and and thinking that nothing is ever getting done um what keeps you uh keeps that spark going for you you know she talks about the sense of life and that you get from from individual responsibility and the um, the burden that you feel when you look in the mirror in the morning and, and realize that if, if it's not happening, you have a responsibility to step up and, and make it happen. And I, I think I think libertarians sort of discount the, the responsibility part of liberty. And and I've always felt that. And to me it's it's kind of a it's kind of a passion to to try to make things better. Um, that you know we've we've lost control of so many of our important words that describe who we are. We've lost liberal, we've lost mm -hmm. community. We've even lost justice in the context of, of social justice. But I, I think anybody that fights for these ideas definitely has a sense for wanting to make the world a better place, wanting um, to create more opportunities for more people and, and, and lift people out of poverty and all the things that we know that, that liberty can do for civil society. Um, and I think that politics is is a useful vehicle but often a barrier to those sorts of 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 common sense conversations that we can have with people that don't they don't know about liberty they don't know about Ayn Rand or or Ludwig von Mises but but they still have that sort of instinctual american sense that that freedom works better than than government or or central planning and and we have this opportunity today to talk to all the people on social media, not just the people in our silos. And I think that's, that's Free the People has spent a lot of time um, talking across the political spectrum. I've, I'm having a lot of uh, productive and civil conversations with, with very important progressive leaders. And I, I think that is, um, it sounds a little crazy, it sounds a little disruptive, but I think the answer there is to sort of get out of our comfort zone and talk to people that that we don't think are going to agree with us on anything, and, and be civil and polite and good humored about it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's something that that a lot of people don't really want to do or or think it's a waste of time doing. But I've always found, at least, that um, there's often more to to agree with than there is to disagree with. There really is, and you know. When it comes to politics, we're all going to disagree. We're all going to choose our candidate, and we're going to fight like heck to to win at any cost. But as as you sort of move up the the scale of ideas to basic values that unite all of us, I think that the secret sauce that makes libertarianism a winning strategy is the fact that we're all learning that in this very disintermediated world, we're all a little bit different. And the Democrats have tried to create this this siloed identity politics where we're going to separate people by race and income and sexual preference and you know fill in the blank. They've they've created all these all these categories, but I would argue they're not going nearly far enough. We're all different. We all have different hopes and dreams and goals and, and abilities, and the only platform that allows us to all come together in a cooperative way 
is liberty. We're going to agree, disagree on a thousand different things, but we're going to agree on a couple things. Things, basic rules like don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know any person <laughs> that, that doesn't like the idea of being free. That, that's, that just goes against human nature. Um, so when you, when you connect with that very basic human uh, intuition and, and very basic human nature, that it, it becomes a lot easier to, to connect with people. And we got to shed um, a lot of our um, secret handshakes and tribal language <laughs> that we use as libertarians, because you know right. we, we're talking about the non-aggression principle. And if you're really cool, you're talking about the nap. And at that point, nobody, no decent human <laughs> being, knows what you're talking about. And if you if you could say it in a different way, like I've tried to, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Everybody starts nodding their head, and they almost make fun of you. Like, who? Well, who disagrees with that? Yeah, it's common sense at that point. Yeah, and then, but if if we're going to agree on these common sense values that unite us um, as people, um, we could start to build a framework for peaceful cooperation. We could start to realize that you know what, Washington maybe isn't the best place to solve these problems. Um, and I think again, I. I think the biggest failing of libertarians today is that our audience is way too big and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to reach them. But to me, that's the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity that we've ever had. So we should just dive in feet first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to ask a few questions here. This is sort of a, a lightning round. Um, and this first one, I, I think I know the answer to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Tell me what book has been the most influenced to you and and or uh, would you recommend it to people? Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to narrow it down to one. The Fountainhead was the one that had um, a really profound effect on me, as did Anthem and event, eventually Atlas Shrugged. But I also find um, there's a particular Hayek essay, which is not super easy to read. But it's um, it's called the use of knowledge in society, and everybody should read that because it's it's there that he's describing how decentralized knowledge and and people coming together into what he would later call the spontaneous order, how it is that that all of these great things happen when when people are left free. Um, that is really important to my thinking as well because I, I think understanding spontaneous cooperation is is key to understanding all of the awesomeness of liberty. Um, what band or music do you recommend? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I got back into Rush a couple years ago when I was uh, when I was writing the book "Don't Hurt People and Don't Take Their Stuff." Um, so I'm still into Rush, but uh, but eventually I got into the the Grateful Dead, which is a fundamentally different style of music, a different culture, and I love the very spontaneous nature of of the dead's music and I love the the spontaneous nature of the community that built up around the Grateful Dead and they of course lifted that from from jazz greats like Miles Davis and John Coltrane so I I have a broad range of music uh, you know today I'm listening to the national I like Father John Misty um, I just have some weird taste in music just like I do in literature <laughs> <laughs> Just like, just like, it seems like that's that's a very common thread among libertarians is that we have very odd tastes and and cultural aspects. <laughs> Eclectic. At, at my age, I can be 
eccentric, and you at your age have to be weird. Right. Yeah. Well, I I've, I fully embrace that, so it's it's not a not a big deal to me. <laughs> um, and finally, what what beer do you recommend? Um, I like super hoppy beers. Uh, there's a beer made by Russian River called Pliny the Elder, which is the the benchmark for all that is great in hoppy beers. Uh, Three Floyds makes some some really profound beer, beers uh, based in Indiana. And I would check out something sort of local to where we live in Washington, D.C., the Vale Brewing based in uh, Richmond, Virginia. But, I, you know, my... My pattern is I, I love I love these 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 really piney citrusy hoppy beers that that are now all the rage in in our in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Matt, I have thoroughly enjoyed this uh, conversation, and I hope to uh, to do it again sometime. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you, sir. And now I am free to go find a beer somewhere. <laughs> Uh, why don't you tell us where people can find you on social media? So, uh, Twitter at mkibby. Uh, my Facebook page is uh, my big one is Matt Kibby, and and definitely check out uh, freethepeople.org, and you can see a lot of the videos we've produced there, and you can um, hopefully help us help us get involved in this experimentation and. And how we how we how we reach that mass audience for liberty that we're all trying to get to, right? And we'll we'll link it down in the show notes and make it easy for people to find. And then you can find uh, me on Twitter at Caleb Franz and follow the show at Mill Liberty uh, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating and a review uh, so that you'll never miss an episode or an update. And until next week, we'll see you.